Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. While we're continuing our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 2, our study of the book of Revelation, with a message entitled, When the Trumpets Sound. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 8, verses 6 to 13. I wonder if you've ever taken the grace of God for granted. You know, all of us have, but the more we grow into Christ and the more we become aware of the kindness of God in all things, well, everything seems to change. Have you ever wondered why it is that Christians don't begin a meal without first pausing and giving thanks? The reason we do that is that we don't want to take the meal for granted. We know that to eat comes from the gracious hand of our God. He has provided us with a creation that is abundant in crops that springs from his good earth. The earth teems with animals, and some are given to us for food, and water from the taps in our houses. Well, that doesn't appear magically. You know, God has given Canada an amazing bounty, blessed by the mercy of God, and the rivers that flow from our mountains, and and the rain that falls onto our land to germinate seed, and, and the water that fills up our reservoirs, and the underground streams that flow underneath us, all of that speaks of an abundant God who has opened up the storehouses of abundance and shown us grace. You know, what else can we speak of? Oceans that teem with life and are essential to the world's ecosystems, these are from the hand of God. The sun that is exactly the distance that it is from the earth, that that warms the land, and the moon that affects the tides. Well, we could go on and on. Romans 1 verse 21, in condemning all of humanity, the Apostle Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Indeed, the beginning of all darkness in this world begins as we fail daily to fall onto our knees and acknowledge the gracious kindness of God in providing the abundance that he does. Failure to give thanks is the beginning of all that is evil. In our study of Revelation, we come today to the beginning of a section that describes seven angels blowing seven trumpets, which signals the beginning of the judgment of God on the human race and the beginning of the great and terrible day of the Lord. The scroll has been opened in heaven and God's great end-time program has begun. And therefore, it should not surprise us that the place where judgment begins is in that place where the human race's greatest failure is found the failure to give thanks for the abundance of the good earth that God has created for us. Imagine for a moment what the ten plagues must have felt like for Pharaoh Amenhophus and his kingdom in the time of Moses. Egypt seemed secure and had taken care that the kinds of people that had defeated her in the past would not do so again. From their unique geographical location, the Egyptians had expanded their empire into the Middle East. Pharaoh could command his armies and chariots, and yet he could also guard the entrance of the Nile. He could protect himself from attack. And so no one in that region could resist him or defeat him. And then instead of a full-scale military attack, we see an attack on nature, an attack on the Nile, and then an attack on their crops and on their livestock. The Egyptians hadn't considered that possibility, and it's, and it's like that today. The Western world seems powerful with sophisticated weapons and high-tech surveillance systems and a monetary system that seems fairly secure. I mean, technology that no one has even dreamed of only a few generations ago. It has not occurred to us. What happens if no water flows from our taps? Most people have never even thought about that. That's because they've not been practicing the daily habit of noticing the small things, things that are really big things, and thanking God for the abundance of his creation. 
When the great day of the Lord arrives, he will begin his judgment on a lost world by attacking nature or by cutting off the supply of his own creation, a creation we've taken so for granted. And as we will see, as we work through this section of the blowing of the seven trumpets, we're going to see that the first trumpets, the four, deal with nature. And then later, we're going to see that the next two deal with people themselves. But just before I begin to read, let's remember the events that occurred just before the blowing of the trumpets. In Revelation chapter 8, verses 2 to 5, we saw the prayers of God's people rising with the incense coming up before God in the heavenly temple of God. God has been throughout the ages paying keen attention to the prayers of his people, and he is now calling for righteousness. And getting back to Egypt, it was no different then. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, it says, The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And if you think about it, at the time of the writing of Revelation, that was no different. No doubt the Christians in the seven churches in Asia were also crying out before God because of their cruel taskmasters. So let's begin by reading our account of the blowing of the trumpets. Today, we're going to track the blowing of the first four trumpets, which marks the beginning of the great day of the Lord. I'm reading Revelation chapter 8, verses 6 to 7. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, as we will see, each of these trumpet blasts, at least the first four ones, seem to have a direct correlation back to the plagues of Egypt. And if you think about this one, and if you know the Exodus account well, you might immediately be reminded of the seventh plague that God brought upon the Egyptians. I'm reading Exodus 9, 23 to 25. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant on the field and broke every tree of the field. Now, the similarity between the seventh plague on Egypt and the first trumpet sound that marks the beginning of the troubling of the earth is no coincidence. God often uses what some Bible teachers call types. You know, a type is a real event in history, but that real event foreshadows a much greater reality in the future. And that's what we have here. God's decimation of Egypt is but a type of the great and final decimation of the earth. Now, again, we might be tempted to raise some questions. If God protected Israel during these plagues, and indeed, if God in the previous chapter put a seal on his people in order to protect them from his wrath, what are we to make of this? I mean, what happens to God's people during this time? So let me cheat a little and go forward to chapter 9, verse 4. There we are told that when these events occur, God will protect those who have the seal of God on their forehead. And so we might as well deal with what I suspect we're all thinking at this point in time. If when the first angel blows his trumpet and then hail and fire and blood comes hurling down from heaven and falls to the earth, and if God's people are described as being there but are protected, well, exactly what's going on and and how should we understand this? Well, let me suggest a little secret as we study this. 
You'll remember that when the first trumpet sounds, one-third of the earth, one-third of the trees, and all the green grass is burned up. But how did that occur? Now, pay attention because I'm going to take you ahead to chapter 9, verse 4. And there we read at the blowing of the fifth trumpet that locusts, and we'll talk about the locusts later, but, but locusts were told, do not harm the grass of the earth or any green plant. And so we might ask if at the blowing of the first trumpet, all the grass is destroyed, and then at the blowing of the fifth trumpet, we're told that all the grass is protected. Well, is that just a rampant contradiction? Well, no, it's not but it's key to understanding what we're reading. See, I don't think that we're intended to see this with some kind of a rigid literalness. It may be literal or it may be figurative. We don't know. The point is this. When the great day of the Lord begins, God's first act will mirror the seventh plague of Egypt, and he will cause great desolation to one-third of the arable land of the earth. One-third of the crops will die, so much so that the earth is no longer green but brown. Now, how is he going to do that? (laughs) Listen to my answer. I don't know. See, is this a natural man-made thing, like the result of our lack of care for the earth that comes, you know, pollution, greenhouse gases, the like? Well, I don't think it has even the remotest thing to do with that. Just like Egypt, where the plagues clearly come from a divine source, so here also it's unmistakable the source is divine. The beginning of the day of the Lord has come as God curses one-third of the earth, with a dramatic loss of food supply, resulting in a massive shock of the people of the earth, they know fully that this has come supernaturally from the hand of God. Suddenly, all those who took for granted the food they had stuffed into their mouths will realize that God gives, but he can also take away. If we eat, it has always been his mercy. And if we do not eat, he has removed his hand. Suddenly, the earth's unwillingness to give thanks to God for all things is showing up in a dramatic fashion. And suddenly all the earth has to decide what to do. What will we do with the hand of God? Back to the Bible Canada's 2018 Celebration Caribbean Cruise is scheduled for this coming February. Join the ministry team for a nine-day journey to some of the Caribbean's most spectacular and exotic islands and locations. Enjoy a great vacation, all that the cruise ship has to offer, and enjoy the inspirational Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, encouragement and laughter with Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and worship with and take in a special exclusive musical concert with the Weebs. This is a vacation event for the entire family that you're not going to want to miss. So make plans today by calling 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit backtothebible.ca for all the cruise details. Now, space is limited and registration is going well, so don't be disappointed and book now. And remember, the entire cost of all ministry vacation events are paid by those who participate. We come now to the blowing of the second trumpet. I'm reading Revelation 8, 8 to 9. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. If the first trumpet signaled 
the great blow to one-third of the Earth's land, the second trumpet signals a great blow to the Earth's oceans. Now, like before, this second trumpet, again, sounds very much like what happened back in Egypt. This sounds very much like the first plague on Egypt, which struck the Nile and the Nile turned into blood. The Nile was the great lifeline of Egypt, and in the same way, the health of the oceans, (laughs) that's the lifeline of the world. Again, I'm struck by the account here. Something, says John, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. I recently spent time on the Greek island of Santorini, which is a caldera. It means it's a semi-curved island, which is a portion of a whole, a whole volcano. About 1500 years BC, a massive volcano erupted and blew up most of the island and created such a tidal wave that the civilization of the Minoans on the island of Crete was wiped out in less than an hour. It was massive, it was devastating. Again, I think what John is describing is a supernatural event, and this one is a great burning mountain that destroys a third of the Earth's oceans, and you can only imagine the tsunami that ensues. And if we're not yet staggered by the immensity of what has transpired, we're just getting going. I'm now reading Revelation 8, 10 to 11. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Again, as before, let's notice how this corresponds to the plagues in Egypt. This one also seems remarkably like the first plague in Egypt, but in the book of Revelation, there's a distinction made between the devastation that is brought to the world's oceans and the world's freshwater lakes and rivers and underground streams. This third trumpet signals a great devastation to the world's drinking water. The word wormwood is an interesting word. It's a word that's occasionally used in the Old Testament. For instance, let me read from Proverbs chapter 5, 3 to 4. It says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is as bitter as wormwood. The word is used twice in the book of Jeremiah. It's used in chapter 9, 15, and then in chapter 24, verse 15. And in both of those cases, the ESV translates that term as poisoned water. Well, in truth, wormwood doesn't actually mean poisoned water, but it does mean water that is so foul that no human being, no matter how thirsty they actually are, can get that down their throat. But in the case of Revelation, the desperation for water is so great, people are actually drinking this and dying from it, so great is their plight. Now on to Revelation chapter 8 and verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now, as before, we're again struck by the connection between this and the plagues of Egypt, this time to the ninth plague found in Exodus 10.21. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. But unlike the plagues in Egypt, in this case, the sun is only partially darkened. If I understand this passage rightly, at the brightest part of the day, the light of the sun is reduced in strength by a third. The same is true for the strength of moonlight and the light of the stars. And so, from the first trumpets, which mark only the beginning of God's judgment of the earth, we've seen severe damage to arable land, to the world's oceans, to the earth's fresh water sources, and to the light that penetrates into the earth's atmosphere. 
Now, let me pause and give a little lesson on Bible study and what I'm about to say. That's so very important because I could almost hear all the theories now. Perhaps a massive super volcano has blown and has blackened the atmosphere. And then someone will do a study and they're going to tell us that Yellowstone is getting closer to an eruption. And soon we're going to develop a theory that says, well, since Yellowstone is ready to erupt, we must be in the last days. So let me explain what this kind of approach to Bible study is all about. That's called Jesus. The right approach to Bible study has been called Jesus. Let me explain the difference. If you go to Greece today, you're going to immediately notice as you're driving down the road that the Greek word for exit that's found on the roadways is the word exodus. Yep, you guessed it. Exodus means exit, but it also means the way out or the road out. And then when you get to an on-ramp onto the freeway, you're going to find the word isodos. It means the way in. You see, ex means out and ice means in. In the same way, exegesis means reading a meaning out of the text, and eisegesis means reading a meaning into the text. First is good, second is very bad. See, what we are to do is to let John in Revelation speak for himself and read what he says out of the text. We're not to take our meanings like theories of super volcanoes and air pollution and global warming and and read them into the text. See, that approach just leads to endless speculation and disagreement among believers, and it has absolutely nothing to do with what John is trying to communicate to us. John did not want to signal us as to seismic earthly events that tell us that the coming of the Lord is near. Instead, he says that when the trumpet begins to blow, we enter into the opening of the scroll, the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, that God's first action is that he will cause considerable damage to the world's arable land, the world's oceans, the world's freshwater sources, and the light that comes to the earth. That's it, period. Stop reading your theories into the text. Your theories are probably wrong, and they just turn off a generation of Bible readers who now believe that revelation has to do with science fiction and weird theories that never come true. Now that I've made my point and gotten that off my chest, let me make application. When we read this account, we might ask ourselves, is God really going to do this? Some of you might wonder, is God overreacting to the sin of this world? Isn't this just a bit extreme? Is, Is God really like this? When the apostle Peter discussed this very thing, he had some very pointed things to say, and I'm going to have a rough quotation from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. There, Peter points out that God did not spare the angels when they sinned. And then he says, God did not spare the ancient world at the time when he sent a global flood and he wiped out the world. And then he adds, God did not spare the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he condemned them with ashes and extinction. And if that's so, says Peter, don't you think that God knows how to bring the unrighteous to the day of judgment? And that brings me back to the place where we started. See, why is it that we thank God when we sit down to eat a meal? Years ago, I had a pastor from Rwanda staying with us, and I'll I'll never forget the day that he arrived in our home. It was summer, and it was a very hot day. I asked him if I could get him something to drink. We had coffee in the house. We had also soft drinks. We had juice. I mean, it went down the list. No problem at all. It was all on the menu, easy peasy. And he said, water would be fine. And I put ice cubes in the water, and he gazed at it in wonder. And as I set it in the table in front of him, And then what happened next, I'm just never going to forget. For well over five minutes, maybe it was up to 10, 
I watched as he bowed his head and gave thanks for both the water and the one who had offered him a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus. And and I was floored. I, I had never seen anything like that before over a simple glass of water. And yet I have wondered since, why is it that I've never seen that before? You know, if today you're not a Christian, and if today you've not come to the realization that all you have has been given to you out of God's boundless mercy and grace, might I suggest that now is the day to profoundly repent of your sin of ingratitude and ask Christ to forgive you and to take away your sin. It's not a small matter. According to Romans 1, the wrath of God comes because we will not be thankful and we will not plead with God for mercy. I beg you, confess your sin. Come to Christ. Don't await the final day when the trumpet sounds and all is taken from you. Come to your senses. Call upon the Lord for mercy while there is still time. Pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that you've given me so much and I've responded so little. Forgive my sins, O Lord. I ask you to take them away. I trust in Jesus and I give my life over to you. Take my life. Rule over it. Make me your disciple. In Jesus' name, amen. John, this month is so important to the ministry financially. It's our fiscal year end, and we have a significant goal of $338,000. I know the goal is reachable, but not without folks who share the same heart and passion for the mission of Back to the Bible Canada. Now, it wasn't that long ago, a number of the ministry team gathered together around a table and began to talk about how we would express this ministry in its purest, most direct form. And what we came up with is, at first glimpse, might seem shockingly obvious, but it really does hit the target. It's simply this. We teach the Bible. Now, here's my question. Is that too simple? What do you think? I think it's profound. I I love that. We teach the Bible. In the end, I think what we're saying as an entire ministry, we have nothing else to say. We think that God has given us a message in Scripture, and the more we get to know that text, the more we understand it thoroughly and continue to walk with that thing and communicate it well. If we do that one thing, we're communicating the most important thing that this country and this world needs to hear. You know, I was with a friend of ours, Brian, and he was telling me the other day, one of the things he appreciated so much about your teaching is this, and I'm just going to quote him. He says, I love how John gets out of the way and allows the Bible to speak for itself. That's critically important to you, isn't it? Yeah, that's a real compliment. I really took that to heart. And I do want to you know, pray to the Lord. Lord, may I always get out of the way so that your word would be front and center. So why do you think that's so important for people to understand that that's the sort of the approach we take? Yeah, we do verse-by-verse Bible teaching. We try to understand a book within its context. We want to understand what it meant to its original hearers. Once we understand that, we'll apply it to our day. So we're rejecting a super-spiritualized approach. We're taking the plain meaning of the text. That's the only way we're supposed to understand the text. So, you know, from my vantage point, Ben, if we don't do that thing, if we don't explain the text as it was written, verse-by-verse, carefully, you know, we won't be communicating the Word. Thanks so much, John. And please help us with our fiscal year-end goal in the month of June. You can call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, we teach the Bible.